Well, if there's always a danger I think we live in, it is the danger of missing the point. Namely, living each day devaluing what is most valuable, valuing what is ultimately fleeting, seeking knowledge in and knowing things that ultimately don't matter, and not knowing the things that are most precious, orienting our lives around what ultimately is fading, rather than orienting our lives around the one who who never fades or fails, and putting our hopes in a thousand hopeless things, rather than the one thing, the one person, the one place that never fails. So Titus is a book that the Apostle Paul wrote to keep us from falling prey to those very kinds of dangers. It is a life anchoring book. It is a church building, church anchoring book. It shows us how the gospel works itself out in the life of a believer. And it shows us how the grace of God in Christ is to work itself out in the life of a church. What are we to be about? What are we to be living for? For what task has the Lord left us here? These are, these are questions that the Apostle Paul in this letter is answering and asking. And so my prayer in preaching through such a book, by God's grace, is that the Lord would use these words to accomplish in us the very things that Paul sought to accomplish in writing it. And I would even say, as we'll see this morning, the very things... Paul was sent as an apostle to accomplish. To plant and solidify our faith in the knowledge of the truth which will produce godliness in our lives and a godliness that is strongly rooted in the hope of eternal life. And all of this is possible because the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ. So just by way of a little background, Paul wrote this letter sometime in the mid-60s A.D. Between his first and second Roman imprisonment, during his first missionary journey or on the tail end of it, Paul's going to write the book of Galatians. During his second missionary journey, he's going to write 1 and 2 Thessalonians. On his third missionary journey, he's going to write 1 and 2 Corinthians and Romans. And then his fourth missionary journey, that's an included imprisonment, He's going to write Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. And he's going to be released from prison, and he's going to write 1 Timothy and Titus. And he's going to be rearrested, and from that second imprisonment, write 2 Timothy, and then be beheaded. So Titus is written between those two Roman imprisonments. Two, as we see in verse 4 of chapter 1, my true child in the common faith. That's how Paul saw Titus. A co-laborer in the gospel and his true child in the common faith, which means Paul had proclaimed the gospel to Titus. He had heard it and believed it and become a Christian. And now Paul saw him as my true child in the common faith. Or to use the language of Titus 3.5, Titus had been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. He was given new life and new birth 
by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel. We don't know exactly when this happened, only that it was early in Paul's ministry. This is Galatians, Paul's very first epistle, Galatians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. So here's Titus mentioned early in Paul's ministry. He was a Greek. He was a Gentile, and thereby a testimony that God had, in fact, sent forth the gospel into the world to save Gentiles. As Peter was sent as the apostle primarily to Jews... So Paul is sent as the apostle primarily to Gentiles, and here's Titus, exhibit A, evidence that God had promised, I will save Gentiles, and here he is doing it. Paul traveled, or Titus traveled with Paul in missions. Uh, When the situation in Corinth was at its worst, Paul sent Titus to deal with it. And now on the island of Crete, which is where Titus is when Paul writes this, Paul has left him there to serve and oversee a number of churches that are young and growing and developing and need help. They need help because they're vulnerable to several things that Paul's going to mention in the first chapter. Look, if you were, at verse 10 and 11. Paul's going to say to Titus, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So at some point, the gospel has gone into Crete. We don't know when. There were Cretans at Pentecost in Acts 2. The gospel's gone there, begins to bear fruit, Men and women are being saved. Churches are being formed around the island. And in that short time, there's enough time for many insubordinate to show up. It doesn't take long before the seeds of the gospel are planted, before the enemy sows other kinds of seed. And so Paul is leaving Titus here in Crete and now writing to him to address and respond to false teachers and their teaching to help the church resist and silence them, particularly those of the party of circumcision. And then to appoint leaders who would resist and silence them. But then secondly, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Really direct. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. These are the people of Crete. Here's Paul's response. This testimony is true. This is how God sees them. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in faith. And so here's a second reason Titus is being left there in Crete, and that is just the nature of what the church is. Converted sinners. Converted big sinners 
converted big sinners who still live in a culture full of sinfulness. I think we can be greatly comforted by the truth that this is how God sees unsaved people. This is how, this is what we were. This is who God is dealing with. This is who God is going out to save. Always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Going to send the gospel to them. Redeem them. But then as he does it, they're still here in this culture that is surrounded by immorality, surrounded by dishonesty and deceptiveness. And so Titus was there to help the church live out the gospel in an immoral culture, not by imposing law, which was the solution some were bringing. You know what Cretans need? They need circumcision. You know what Cretans need? They need Jewish myths. And Paul's going to say, no, they need gospel. Thirdly, chapter 2, verse 1, but as for you, he says to Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. So Titus was also left there to set things in order in appointing leaders, but then to faithfully teach the Scripture and to proclaim the gospel, which by the grace of God produces godliness so that the church would in fact be distinctive in the world, distinctive in its faith, distinctive in its living, distinctive in its hope. And so one side of the church was being pounded by these waves of false teachers. Here's the answer to your troubles. Here's the answer to immorality. Here's the answer to pain and whatever else. And then the other side was being pounded with the winds of just culture of immorality and unbelief and unrighteousness. And here's the church in the middle. And Paul's writing to Titus to say, here's what you're to do. Here's what they need. Here's what you need. To set in order what remained, teach sound doctrine, and help the church prove that the key to godliness and hope and good works is not moralism or human striving after the law. It's the grace of God that has appeared in Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that will appear again in Jesus Christ. It's the power of God for life in the here and now. And so I think we see just in Paul's introduction of himself, just these beautiful words that I think give a foreshadowing of where he's going in this letter. He's giving some key words in these first few verses that just kind of show what he thinks is most important, why he is an apostle. And I think he gives for us just this glorious motivation as a church. Here's why we're here. Here's what we're to be about. Verse 1, that was all background. Now we're jumping in. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life. 
that Paul, a doulos, or this slave, this bond slave, and an apostle, which means this uniquely sent out one, this uniquely sent out bearing news one, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. And for the sake of the godliness that that produces. And a godliness that's not in thin air, but that's rooted in real hope. That's why he writes, and Paul says, that's why I'm, a, I'm an apostle. That's what he thinks the church should be about. He's going to say something similar in chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. There's where our faith is. The grace of God that's appeared in Christ. Bringing salvation for all people. There's the knowledge of the truth training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. There's godliness. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's the hope in eternal life. So the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ And someday in the future, he will appear again. And we live here between these appearings. He has appeared, bringing salvation. He will appear, bringing once and for all time salvation. And we live in the middle. And how are we to live in the middle? I think that's what Titus is about. And so our four points for this morning basically take those four points Words, faith, knowledge, godliness, hope, and just turns them into application. Those four words flushed out. What is to be our response to God, to the gospel, to his word, and what are we really here to pray for and desire and want in one another and in the world? Firstly, believe, faith. For the grace of God saves through faith, which means we live and grow by faith. This will be a theme of the book of Titus. The law does not save sinners. It condemns them. The law does not sanctify saints. It shows them their need for a sanctifier for the continual need of grace. The grace of God in Christ saves and imparts life, and it does this through what Paul calls the faith of God's elect, which means the personal response of belief or trust in Christ for those chosen for salvation. Faith hears the word of God and believes and obeys. If you want to know what to do this morning in response to the preaching of the word, that's it. Faith hears the word of God and believes and obeys. So God says, I'm a sinful wretch and under wrath apart from Christ and in need of a Savior, I believe and I'm going to fear him. God says Jesus Christ paid for sin. God says Jesus Christ provides a righteousness to me that I can stand before God justified and declared righteous. I believe, and I'm going to cling to him. 
I'm going to trust in him. God says I should turn from my sin and trust upon Jesus and worship him. Well, then I believe. I'm going to worship him. That's why we're told to have the faith of a child that just accepts at face value exactly what God says and responds in a way that is based upon what he has said. What we most need is God's grace to believe what God in his grace has promised and accomplished and provided in Jesus Christ. If you want to really know what you really need, what other people really need, that's it. That's why Paul is going out for the sake of the faith of God's elect because he knows this is what we need. God's grace to believe what God in his grace has accomplished and will accomplish. So the answer to Cretanism of verse 12 is not circumcision, verse 10. The answer is not Jewish myths, verse 14. In other words, the answer to human sinfulness and misery is not more laws and traditions, even really good ones. The answer is gospel. Because it's so tempting to believe that adherence to rules and adherence to customs and outward forms of religion can make me pleasing to God when really they just make us pleasing to ourselves. And so oftentimes our experience of being pleasing to God is really just our experience of being pleased with ourselves. And we think God is pleased in the same way, which is why we need his word to show us that the answer to lawlessness is not lawfulness. The answer is the grace of God and Jesus Christ. Titus 3, 4, and 5, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing or renewal of the Holy Spirit. So God chooses to create us. God chooses to recreate us. God chooses to give us physical life. God chooses to give us spiritual life. And it says here, of the Holy Spirit. And so God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us. And God the Son did so by his own blood. God the Father sends God the Spirit to grant faith to our hearts in his work of redemption and therefore unites us to the Son who then takes us back to the Father. Father through the Son to the Spirit, Spirit grabs us, unites us to the Son, brings us back to the Father. That's how we're reconciled. And faith then is the mechanism through which God imparts that saving work. It's massive. Some of what we're meant to take away, I think, from this passage, faith is a massive thing. We should never speak of it flippantly as if just have a little faith or just I'm a person of faith. It's spiritual breathing. Faith is not an academic choice. It's a wholehearted posture before God. It's the whole of our being submitted to God. It's a miracle. 
It's, it's a God-given capacity to see the truth, to hear the truth, to respond in obedience to the truth, to believe in all that God says, to behold and worship Christ and repent of sin and everything else. At the end of the Gospel of John, here's what he wrote. But these things, meaning the whole Gospel of John, are written so that you may believe. Think about that. All these things are written so that you may believe what? Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In other words, God inspired the Scripture and moved the authors of Scripture to write it down for the sake of your faith so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in believing, have life in his name. Faith is a massive, important thing. But it's also a hard thing. It's an often assaulted thing, even as followers of Jesus Christ. I don't know what your impulse is, I can tell you, my natural impulse is not to trust God. Not in anything. My natural impulse is to to fix, to minimize sin, to clean myself up, to put my trust in things I can see and taste and touch and handle, to sort of build for myself a righteousness of my own, to deal with sin my way, to patch things up with God my way. So my impulse isn't cry out, seek help, trust the Lord, his provision. Whether I'm afflicted by the sins of others or afflicted by my own sin or just weighed down by life, my fleshly inclination is to take over, to control to do, to earn, to achieve. It's not to look to Jesus. It's not to listen to his word. It's not to believe his promises. And so we need help. Paul recognizes this. God recognizes this. John 11, we learn about the death of Lazarus, if you know that story that his sisters, Mary and Martha, are going to send for Jesus because Lazarus falls deathly ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Implication, dying. So when he, meaning Jesus, heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. You think, what? Jesus, this one you love, Lazarus, is, is dying. Come, heal him. And when Jesus hears about it, it says he delays. He waits two days. Why? Well, so that Lazarus would die. And he explains himself to his disciples. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. That's incredible. Believe what? 
He's going to say in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. That's what he wants them to believe. That's what, when he says to Martha, that's what he wants her to believe. Lazarus is dying, he's ill. Okay, I'm going to remain, I'm going to wait here because if I go, I'm going to heal him, so I'm going to stay, so he dies. For the sake of your faith, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, let that soak in a minute. God will let people in our lives die for the sake of our faith. God will kill you for the sake of someone else's faith. And that's not to minimize life. That's not to minimize God's love. That's to maximize his love. Because he actually knows what is more vital than just not dying is faith. And thereby not dying, dying. So here Jesus will delay, let Lazarus die, to make a point. And to give his disciples and all those who are going to witness it to see he is the resurrection and the life. So the Apostle Paul labored for the same reason, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, because he knew that faith is the fountainhead of the Christian life, the place where the grace of God in Christ and the power of his Spirit flow into our hearts and lives and transform everything, change everything. But that faith is not to be based on whatever. There's something that that faith is in, and we see that is where Paul goes next, and their knowledge of the truth. So point two, know. Point one, believe. Point two, know. For the grace of God saves through faith in knowledge of the truth. And that phrase, the knowledge of the truth, refers to the fullness of understanding the preached message the fullness of understanding the gospel. Paul devoted his life to helping people develop a full understanding of the gospel, a full understanding of the knowledge of the truth. Chapter 1, verse 9, give instruction in sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 1, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Chapter 2, verse 3, teach what is good. Verses 7 and 8, in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. That while faith is personal, it is not relative. True faith is based on the true message. According to verse 3, the promises of God were at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. And so the Old Testament laid forth all these promises, all these images, all these pictures of this coming Messiah, this coming Savior, this coming hope, and then he appeared. Christ lived and died and was buried and was raised to provide a way of salvation. Then he ascended and sent his spirit and and inspired apostles to now write it down, to proclaim this news. And so the grace of God saves through faith in this news. 
This is Colossians 1.5. Of this, this hope laid up in heaven, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. 1 Timothy 2, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Same phrase. To be saved by coming to a knowledge of the truth and believing. This is Jesus with his disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth. And the truth what? will set you free. John 8. John 16, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He's going to guide the apostles and the disciples into all the truth, and they're going to write it down. John 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is what the church has been entrusted with to preach and proclaim and teach. This is what the church has been entrusted with to guard. Listen to Paul as he says to Timothy, If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. It's also what Paul's saying to Titus. So you ought to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So faith is a massive important thing. But faith in the knowledge of the truth is a massive important thing. And so what we believe matters. What we proclaim matters. It's why we preach from the Bible. If there's ever a day when any man walks up into this pulpit and begins preaching something other than the Bible, you have my permission to grab one out of the pew and just walk it up here and just hand it to him. If Garrett or I ever walk up here and forget the Bible or open and start preaching just something else, just grab one and you can even just throw it at us. That's what we need. That's how important that is, that we're not here to preach ourselves, Paul's going to say to the Corinthians but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And so the church of the living God does not exist to shift and twist and change to appear and look more relevant to the world. Even though I think the message that we bring is the most relevant thing in the world. Because I mean, few things are less relevant to the world than what the world thinks is relevant to the world. The world needs few things less than what it thinks it needs. And this is true of all of us. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Hosea 4. That's what God saw in Israel. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. That's how we destroy ourselves, is a lack of the knowledge of the truth. That's relevant. We die for lack of living water. Our marriages crumble. Our relationships wither away. We fight and bicker and quarrel when we lose sight of the word of reconciliation. The world, the word that reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. 
men confused about manhood, women confused about womanhood, generation confused about how to relate to one another. What do we do? How do we be the household of God? Well, that's why Paul's writing and giving us Titus to give us a knowledge of the truth, how we are to live out the gospel in day-to-day life. Because it is this gospel that produces godliness, which is point three. Live by faith unto God. For the grace of God saves through faith in the knowledge of the truth unto godliness. Notice how Paul says it. For the sake of the faith, verse one, of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The genuine faith grounded in the knowledge of the truth produces godliness, gives birth to godliness, fits us for godliness. And the word godliness here means literally Godwordliness. That the verb form of this Greek word actually means to worship. And the noun translated godliness here means a life oriented around God, a life devoted to God that faith in the knowledge of the truth reorients us to God, helps us live devoted to God. So just as the roots of a tree grows toward streams of water, so faith plants us in him, orients us to him. Just as flowers sort of blossom and grow toward the sun, so we, as his people, grow and are oriented toward the sun. So according to Second Peter, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that doesn't mean the Bible is an encyclopedia of what to have for dinner or what time to get up in the morning or what kind of car to buy. That's to turn the Bible into something that God never wrote it to be. But rather, the Scripture, the knowledge of the truth and faith that now orients us to God where now we see all of life in His light. Now we hear all of life and reinterpret it through his word, by his spirit, which now changes not so much what we eat for dinner, but why we eat it. It doesn't change what we buy, but why we buy it. It doesn't change exactly all the content of our use of time, but the reason for everything we do in our time. It orients us to him. Now we arise in the morning and say, okay, your kingdom come, your will be done. Not my kingdom come, my will be done. And so in Titus 2.14, we learn that Christ gave himself to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people. Titus 3.5, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So the grace of God through Jesus Christ redeems us purchases us from slavery to sin and death, then regenerates us, gives us new birth, then renews us, gives us new life, 
And all of this through the filling and by the Holy Spirit. This is why the Cretan churches did not need circumcision in Jewish myths. They had the Holy Spirit. They had the power of the gospel. They didn't need more. They needed to understand what they had. And that's why we don't need it either. Or to use Peter's words, we have divine power in us. So we have the Holy Spirit and knowledge of the truth in the gospel that equips and trains us for today. That's a lot. We have the Holy Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ that equips and trains us for life in the here and now. Because God isn't just an idea, he's a person. Jesus isn't just sort of a mystic figure, he's, he's a person. The Holy Spirit isn't just sort of air chemicals. He's a person who relates to us, who leads us, who helps us, who strengthens us, who speaks through his word to us. This is why he trains us in godliness to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so the gospel isn't something we believe and then stick on a shelf. It's something we keep going back to, keep mulling over, keep hearing, keep speaking about, keep applying. Under these circumstances, at this moment in time, What would the gospel say to me? How would the Spirit lead me? How, if I were to orient my life around God, how would my thoughts, my emotions, my behavior, my relationships be changed? So this assumes that Christian faith does not mean immediate spiritual perfection. It assumes that. That faith works itself through love over time. We're not just zapped into godliness. What a pressure that would be if we taught perfectionism. That the way you know you're saved is that you just don't sin anymore. You just don't make mistakes anymore. Well, if that were the case, then we wouldn't have Titus. Paul wouldn't have written this. Because in chapter 2, verse 1, he's going to tell Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine before giving examples of what that godliness looks like in the life of older men and younger men and older women and younger women. In all the members of the church, why would he need to say all that? Well, because we don't know what to do. We need help and direction learning how to love one another. That's why we gather as a church, read Scripture, teach Scripture, cry out in prayer to the Holy Spirit. That's why we encourage one another. That's why we reprove one another. That's why we comfort one another. Is we need help. Change is a process. So if you're even new here or you're not a Christian and this is your first time to be in a church, I think I need to say up front that the church is a hospital of people being healed. It's not a a sort of spa of people being pampered. It's a hospital of sick people. 
Some of us are on life support. (laughs) Others of us are in intensive care. Sort of some of us have graduated just to day treatment. But then look out, next week we'll get hit by something and we'll be back in intensive care. It's not a place where God just pampers just people who have it together. The church is a potter's workshop, not a museum of sort of finished sculptures. This isn't where you come to sort of see perfect holiness on display. It's where you see filthy stuff being reformed, messy stuff being reformed. If you've ever been into a potter's workshop, it's messy. Walk into a workshop that isn't messy, and what does that mean? There's no work being done there. Yes, the stall is clean, the proverb says, where there are no oxen. (laughs) But faith comes by the strength of the ox. That's a great verse for parents of young children. Yes, the house will be clean where there are no children. But if you want children, life is messy. In the same way, God's household would in fact be clean if there was nobody here. But he wants children. He wants to grow them and train them. And and that's more like a workshop than it is a museum. So the church is messy but the church is a beautiful place to be because it's in this place that we get to see the potter's workmanship taking shape. It's in this place where the potter is working and through these people that the potter is working. And there's going to be another theme of Titus, that the church is the showcase for the gospel, which isn't you look at it cross-sectionally and everything looks great. It's that you look at it longitudinally over time and you see the church being sanctified. That's the testimony to the power of God. It's not that people can look at me and go, wow, there is a God, you're amazing. It's that people can look at me and go, wow, there is a God, I remember what you were. Wow, there is is a God, I couldn't imagine what you would be without the Holy Spirit. That's the testimony. Imagine how bad it would be if God wasn't in us. So the testimony to the power of the gospel and to the Spirit of God is the change that he's bringing about. It isn't that he's justified us before him and will glorify us someday. It's all this stuff he's doing in the middle, which is another reason why we're here to be a display to the world of God's power in saving a people over that time. That's also a reason why he he doesn't just perfect us immediately because where's the show in that? How quickly would we not need him, forget him? And so, so he sanctifies us in slow motion so that people can look and see God at work. The order is important. Faith and salvation do not flow from good works for his glory. Or, this is, or do flow, for, or, or good works rather flow out of faith. Genuine faith based upon the knowledge of the truth in the gospel produces a godliness of heart that produces godliness in action. Not the other way around. 
We don't do godliness in action to get godly hearts to get salvation. But rather, the grace of God in Christ appears bringing salvation to all men, regenerating us by the Holy Spirit, and then producing godliness over time, a Godward life with good deeds that flow from it. So believe, know godliness. That's the order. But that's not the end. He also says hope. Hope for the grace of God saves through faith in the knowledge of the truth unto godliness and sets our hope upon Christ and his appearing. In hope of eternal life means waiting with convinced anticipation, with eager expectation that what God promised he will deliver. Hope isn't a dream. Hope isn't, it sure would be nice if. Hope isn't a wish. It is rather convinced expectation. It means waiting with full assurance. And the reason is because that hope is based on the very character of God. Look at what Paul says in verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies promised before the ages began. In other words, before the ages began, before in the beginning God created, when God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit were the only ones there, a promise was made. God promised within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, to save and redeem and purchase a certain group of people for himself. Or according to Revelation 13, 8, their names are written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That's incredible. (laughs) That before the foundation of the world, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, your name was written in his book before time began. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit promised one another to redeem you. Who said what to who, when, don't know. Only that God promised for the ages began to save you. Or in the words of Paul in Ephesians, He, the Father, chose us in Him, the Son, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. He goes on to say, In Him, You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, there it is, the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I mean, those are hope-producing promises. Because God the Father, before the foundation of the world, gave you to God the Son to redeem. God accomplished in the Son what He desired, and then the Spirit entered into you, sealed you, gave you new birth, joined you to Him, just as He'd promised before the beginning of the world. And so how sure is the Christian hope? How solid 
is the Christian hope, which is why he says hope and eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, that faith in that kind of knowledge of the truth produces godliness, but not a godliness that's just trying to survive until you die, a kind of godliness that is eagerly waiting for his appearing, eagerly waiting for eternal life that he promised. At the proper time, God manifested the promises of eternal life through the gospel. And so the Apostle Paul could go out preaching, manifesting those promises because he knew they were based on what God had promised to do before the foundation of the world. That's our confidence in preaching and proclaiming the gospel. That's our confidence in sharing the good news with neighbors. How many of us go next door and share the good news of who's going to win the next Super Bowl? Or share the good news of who's going to get elected president? Or share the good news of economic prosperity? Or share the good news that your life is going to be free of pain and trouble? Or share the good news that if you just work hard enough, clean up enough, get moral enough, you'll die and go somewhere pleasant? We don't share that news because that isn't good news. And there's no hope in that news. But we go and proclaim the grace of God has appeared in Jesus Christ bringing salvation to all men and that your sin, if you would repent and believe, it's paid for. You can be forgiven. You can be reconciled to him. You can be filled with the Spirit and sealed for eternal glory. In hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace and peace. That's what Paul announces. That's what Paul is offering to those who hear. Grace from God and peace with God. Grace in Christ and reconciliation through Christ to God. And that accords with godliness. That produces a Godward-oriented life a life of his kingdom come, his will be done. And a godly life that is sort of rooted in eager anticipation that he's coming and that we're going and that eternal life is ours in him. Because there will always be false promises of law-keeping. There will always be just the pressures of immorality and temptation to go back to what we were. The church will always feel squeezed in the middle. And the answer is an ever-growing, ever-developing, ever-deepening grasp of the gospel, of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. 
That's a glorious motivation for the church to go forth for the sake of the faith of God's elect, to go forth with the knowledge of the truth, to go forth as those constantly being reoriented and more oriented around our God and full of hope, full of joy, bringing grace and peace, which, again, is the relevant, the only relevant message in the world. That's why Paul is going to live and die for it. We need God's grace to grant that to us, an ever-deepening, ever-broadening, ever-thickening faith in the knowledge of the truth of Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit regenerated us and renewed us according to that truth and grows us in godliness upon that truth and feeds our hope through faith in that truth. Which is why we pray, give us faith. Lord, give us more faith, more knowledge of the truth. Root our hopes where they belong. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. Not that you would give us more money. Not that you would give us more ease. Not that you would give us more stuff in the world. Not that you would give us people who treat us nicely. Not that you would give us a certain kind of government or a certain kind of weather or a certain kind of health in our bodies. It's nice. Lord, we pray if it's your will, give us nice things. But that's not what we crave. We long to know you, to see you, to believe upon you, to rest in you. And we pray that you would make us faithful in the preaching of this message. Help us get the point. Help us go into the world with Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, to give promises that you have given that turn to him and be saved. Lord, make us faithful to that. Give us hope. In that, in Christ's name we pray, amen.